Judge Boyce issues a new order that sets the stage for a joint trial, an update on the University of Idaho case. The uh, Delphi town prepares for a hearing next week. The Debbie Collier case is ruled a suicide. Alec Murdoch provides his notice of alibi. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. First, you know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, hit that little bell for notifications, leave me a comment, and as always, remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps, just simply by searching Crime Talk. All right, also, you know the drill. We gotta support the people that support Crime Talk. Help keep the lights on, so to speak. All right, first, go to crimetalksearch.com. There, you can get a background subscription service where you can run a background search on anyone. And when you have this subscription, you are not limited to just one search. You can search as many people as you want. And the beautiful thing is, once you're done searching, you can cancel at any time if you desire to do so. And that search that is prepared while you wait is going to provide information about bankruptcy records, uh, judgments against individuals, whether somebody's married, divorced. Additionally, what their criminal history is, and most importantly, are they on any of those public registries that maybe they're required to do so as a condition of their release or probation? Things you want to know about people that maybe they're not going to tell you. So before they become closer and become a part of your life, check them out. Go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right, we have a big docket for you today. It's been kind of a crazy week. I was on the road most of the week doing court stuff, and it is a freezing cold day here at the Crime Talk studios. It is cold outside. All right, let's get to it. Let's open the docket for November 18th, 2022. First, the judge has issued an order in the Chad Daybell case, specifically regarding the motion for sever that was argued about a week and a half ago. And the court says denied. Now, I think that this is worth reading almost in its entirety, simply for the fact that I think the court got it right sometimes and didn't get it right the other time. I think it's going to be a huge mess. I understand uh, John Pryor making this motion, supplementing it, and there's still relief. But I think the judge feels confident that he is not going to be overturned on appeal if there is a conviction, but we will have to wait and see. So let's get to it. First, the court said that they are issuing the order pending. The court says that they're issuing a memorandum decision and order in regards to the motion pending before the court, uh, specifically the motion to sever from the death noticed co-defendant in order to enforce Mr. DeBell's rights. The court notes kind of, and this is what we've talked about, the legal writing aspect. Here's the facts. Here's the background. On May 24th, the uh, Fremont County Grand Jury returned an indictment against uh, Chad Guy DeBell, Lori Noreen Vallo de Bell and Alex Cox, who's now deceased, as co-conspirators in the commission of several crimes, including but not limited to multiple counts of first-degree murder and conspiracy. On June 9th of 2021, de Bell was arraigned on the charges listed in the indictment. On August 5th, the state of Idaho filed a notice to seek the death penalty. 
This court ordered that both Daybell and alleged co-conspirator Lori Noreen Vallow were to be tried together in a single trial, finding that joinder of the defendants was proper under the Idaho Criminal Rule 8B. Then on September 7, 2021, Daybell filed a motion for severance contending that severance was required to afford Daybell a fair and impartial trial and supplemented the motion with a memorandum filed February 9th. On March 21st, 2022, the court issued a memorandum decision denying defendant's motion for severance. Then on September 27th, 2022, Daybell filed a second motion for severance and it was 30 page memorandum in support of that motion. The state filed their objections and there was a hearing on November 10th of 2022. In the interim, obviously Mr. Daybell also filed to uh, continue the jury trial and that was granted. The court goes on in regards to the standard of review. This is the Iraq that we talk about in legal writing. You got the facts, which is you know what's taken place before, the procedural background, what's the legal standard. Here we are, rule. Um, actions properly joined under Idaho Code Rule 8B may be severed under Idaho Criminal Rule 14 if it appears that a joint trial would be prejudicial. The criminal defendant bears the burden to show prejudice in making a motion for severance. And um, such motions are committed to the sound discretion of the court and that an appellate court will review a trial court's decision on a motion for severance under an abuse of discretion standard, which means the appellate courts give great deference to the trial court making these rulings. But of course, if the appellate courts think the trial court got it wrong, they'll say that it was an abuse of discretion. So let's take a look at it. Now, under the motion filed by Daybell, he enumerated several sections of both the Idaho and federal constitution as additional grounds to obtain severance, specifically the heightened reliability required in capital cases. Second, a joint trial maturely prejudices Daybell and precedent exists to sever cases subject to the death penalty and judicial economy and Daybell's need for additional time to prepare his defense. The state obviously opposed that, saying that the defendant in his companion cases were properly joined, that the Idaho Criminal Rule 14 requires the movement to establish prejudice and that Daybell has failed to meet that standard. The court then notes that uh, Daybell has now twice petitioned the court for an order requiring the state to deliver the court all statements the defendant intends to introduce at trial. In doing so, Daybell puts the proverbial cart before the legal horse. Twice now in open court, the state has asserted it has delivered to Daybell every statement of the defendants in possession. The court is satisfied the state has complied with its duty to disclose to the defense the statements that may be introduced at trial. There's been no motion to compel related to an accusation that its state has failed to produce such discovery to the defense. Now, the rule expressly provides that the court may enter an order requiring the prosecution to deliver to the court for inspection in camera any statements or confessions made by the defendants that the state intends to introduce a trial. However, it is not incumbent upon the court before trial to parse through all statements disclosed in discovery in an effort to surmise the state's defendant's theory of the case, then determine upon its own investigation whether Idaho Rule 14 is implicated. While the defense has made general references to statements, there's been no reference to the content of such statements either in briefing or argument for the court to consider. Accordingly, the court again has been provided no basis to justify the issuance of an order for an in-camera inspection. Well, this is what we talked about before. Normally in a conspiracy case, the prosecution has to prove that there was in fact 
a conspiracy. They have to do that before statements come in of co-defendants that are co-conspirators, because otherwise then they're just hearsay. Normally that comes through either a proffer or before those statements are actually admitted as co-conspirator statements, the court has to make a determination outside the presence of the jury that the prosecution has in fact established a conspiracy. They don't get to just come in automatically just because they're charged as a conspiracy. I've had trials where people have been charged with a conspiracy and they've been found not guilty, which means they weren't part of the conspiracy. So maybe the court is putting the proverbial cart before the legal horse uh, there himself. Anyway, we continue. Counsel for DeBell has argued that he is unable to articulate the content of any statements at issue because of an existing protective order limiting the dissemination of the discovery in this case. As you may recall, the court has imposed some sort of gag order that basically no facts can be discussed uh, in open court for the rest of the world to see. And the court says, well, I'm not persuaded by that, that these statements can be proffered to the court without running afoul of this protection order. And the defense is permitted to submit statements for in-camera review or file a motion under seal as set forth under uh, the Idaho um, procedural rule 32 to avoid such concerns. However, that's not been done. And instead, the court agrees with the rationale employed by the Supreme Court in denying severance in a case called State v. Fox. And it says, while we do not believe that Fox's attorneys needed to reveal his case strategy in open court, Fox needed to provide something more to the district court to establish prejudice than his bare assertion than joining the charges would confound his defense. The court then says, hey, you have to show prejudice. Prejudice is damage or detriment to one's legal rights or claims. The court then goes through and says the prejudice that uh, Chad Daybell is uh, citing is one that's de depriving him of presenting a complete defense by creating a conflict between a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and the right to an individualized uh, sentencing determination by creating a conflict between the alleged co-conspirators' respective constitutional rights, including the rights under the Confrontation Clause by frustrating a consideration of mitigating factors in the debate in the DeBell's case, and by impinging upon due process and the right to withhold the penalty phase evidence until the appropriate time, and by creating an inherent risk of gender stereotyping that could taint DeBell's right to an individualized sentencing. The court then goes on and says, hey, for the reason cited above, the court finds that the pending conspiracy charges keeping the alleged co-conspirators who have been properly joined for trial is favored and appropriate without necessarily impinging upon any alleged co-conspirators right to a fair trial. It stands to reason for exactly the reason Daybell raises, the need to introduce certain statements of alleged co-conspirators to mitigate accusations raised against Daybell. A joint trial is favored antagonism between defenses or desire of one defendant to exculpate himself by inculpating a co-defendant is insufficient. That means pointing the finger at each other. So this is gonna get really interesting. And when we talk about antagonistic defenses, pointing the finger at somebody saying, I had nothing to do with it, they did it all, that's gonna be very interesting at trial. And a lot of the evidence that 
Mr. Pryorweight may want to come in in regards to everything that Lori Vallow allegedly did with her brother Alex Cox in Arizona. Lori Vallow is not going to want that to come in uh, to kind of set the stage that she's a bad person. That is 404B evidence. And uh, what we've seen, we've received from the public, I guess, no notice of the defense requesting 404B evidence, no notice of what the prosecution intends to introduce as 404B evidence. Remember, the defendants have a right. Lori Vallow has a right to be charged on these charges and these charges alone. And so to bring in other evidence to show that she acted in conformity therewith because she's a bad person from these other charges where she has not been found guilty, do you think Mr. Archibald is going to let that come in or want that to come in for Lori Vallow? I don't think so. But John Pryor does. So we may be getting into a little more than just a conflict here um, of defenses. We've got some evidentiary issues that are going to be super hard for this judge to figure out. And the court basically says, well, we can give a limiting instruction. You can consider this evidence for this purpose as to this defendant, but not to this defendant. But that bell has already been rung before the jury. It's going to be a mess. I get the judge wants to keep these cases together. I get it. From a legal perspective, <laughs> I'm telling you, this case, these cases should be severed. Go try these cases twice. Give everybody their full opportunity for a fair hearing and uh, then render the verdicts. But to kind of jam it down the throats of everybody saying you're going to get this and let the evidence come and be damned, I'm telling you, this is going to be a circus. And the judge has just created a circus by stating that he is going to have a joint trial. Uh, the court goes on stating that uh, next day Bell says that this uh, argument that a joint trial runs afoul of Bruton, which is the United States Supreme Court case, where the Supreme Court said, if you're going to point the finger and statements are going to be introduced as to one defendant, it's basically a confession and not something as it relates to the other co-defendant, you have to sever. And so the court says the protection for a defendant from out-of-court statements and a co-defendant in a joint trial where the co-defendant does not testify. As is typical at this stage of the case, it is unknown if either Daybell or Vallow will elect to testify. While that possibility remains, all parties agreed at the hearing that the motion that they are unaware of any pretrial confessions by any defendant or co-conspirator. The state affirmed to the court that there is no Bruton issue at the time and offered an alternative solution to severance should Bruton become germane to these uh, cases. For example, they went dual juries. While that issue is not right before the court and the court makes no advisory opinion on the issue, the court is persuaded that Bruton is not appropriately invoked to justify severing Daybell trial from Vallow's Daybell's trial at this juncture because there's simply no evidence that any incriminating statement will come in. Bruton was a confession. Incriminating statements can come in in various different forms. Anything somebody says can and will be used against them. So I think the court is taking a very simplistic rule ruling here. But part of that also comes down to Mr. Pryor not providing sufficient and ample information as to what he thinks, what statements are not admissible as to his client, but maybe admissible as to Lori Vallow. So maybe, maybe between now and a trial date that is yet to be determined, uh, Mr. Pryor will come up with yet a third motion. But basically, the court says, denied, we're going to trial. And based upon the 
ruling just a couple of days ago. Lori Vallow is apparently competent. So apparently those issues are resolved. Somewhat to my surprise, I'm not gonna lie. I thought she was down for the count. So let's get all the parties into court. Let's set a court date. Let's set some deadlines for all motions to be filed by both sides. Set a block, maybe a week for hearing, have those issues resolved months in advance of the trial date so this matter can proceed on the next scheduled trial date. And if Mr. Pryor is not going to be able to get co-counsel or stay on the case, he better get off now. It's always interesting in Idaho. Next on the docket, let's talk about the University of Idaho case going on. That's right. The four Idaho students murdered in their home on Sunday were stabbed multiple times by a long and wide knife in an attack that the coroner says was personal. And when he says personal, that they were stabbed to death in their bed. And it's likely that they were asleep when attacked, according to the coroner. The stabbings uh, were targeted apparently in the chest and upper bodies, and it was apparently a pretty large knife. So it's really hard to call them puncture wounds. It has to be somebody that was pretty angry in order to stab four people to death, according to the coroner. Now, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin were all murdered in the house in Moscow, Idaho, by as an yet unidentified killer who remains on the loose. Now, the killings have uh, obviously terrified the college community, with students fleeing campus in fear for their lives. Now, some of the kids apparently suffered defensive wounds, according to the county coroner, Kathy Mabbott. Uh, none of them uh, were assaulted uh, uh, sexually in any way, according to the uh, coroner. Now, police continue to hunt for this killer, but their investigation has been uh, a little slow-paced, and it's enraged apparently not only the community, uh, but the victim's family. Now, the murder weapon has not been found either, and there's no indication police have any suspects as of yet. Now, prosecutors said earlier this week that they have not even narrowed down whether one or multiple people committed the attack. Uh, the coroner did not elaborate why uh, she thought the killings were personal, uh, but she said the wounds were multiple and extensive. She added that she does not believe it was a murder-suicide and that the toxicology results for each victim would be completely irrelevant. Now, there apparently was quite a bit of blood, um, as you can imagine, in any stabbing case. And it was a pretty traumatic scene to find, obviously, uh, four deceased college students in that residence. Maddie's boyfriend, a guy by the name of Jake Schreiger, is not thought to have been in the home when an unidentified killer obviously uh, murdered his girlfriend. It is unclear if Jake has been interviewed by the police or where he was on Sunday uh, when his girlfriend was killed. Now, uh, Yana's uh, father, Jeffrey, reveals that uh, she died fighting for her life. He stated that the autopsy report showed that his daughter, uh, Zana's uh, skin, showed bruises torn by the knife. Her father also questioned how the killer got inside the uh, house since the front door locks uh, use a number code. Uh, he speculated that every time you go in, you have to go around the house because the number codes they either knew that or went around and maybe found the slider door open. He added, I think midnight was the latest time that we heard from her and she was fine. Now a neighbor who lives uh, in an apartment block next 
to the property, said it was pretty notable place for a lot of comings and goings and a lot of na- late night parties. Uh, the neighbor also said there's always parties at the house and the people go in and out there. Usually some noise uh, is coming from that apartment. But on this particular day, he said he didn't hear anything on Sunday morning. No screaming, no gunshots, no nothing. Police on the scene described it as one of the worst they've ever seen. Uh, police were seen collecting the contents of trash cans close to the home as part of the search for the edged weapon that they believe was used in the killing. Now, the trash was taken to a local garbage depot uh, where hazmat suit cops were seen sifting through garbage bags. I don't know what to make of this case. Frankly, it seems like everybody was moving so slow. We also know that two roommates were inside but not injured but didn't hear anything. Very weird to me. When the police finally show up by about noon, when somebody calls, like nobody got up until that time, it just seems very odd to me what's going on. I'm not sure the police obviously are telling us everything in this particular case, but it certainly makes you wonder why the slow pace. Maybe they're just not telling us everything, but it seems like things are going a little slow on this one. Let me know what you think. I mean, in today's world with all the cameras and door ring doorbells and cell phones, uh, they can certainly determine at that time of day how many phones were pinging within that particular uh, several blocks of that house. I don't know. It just seems very odd to me. It just seems very odd to me. Anyway, hopefully the police, um, I know the police are working their hardest to uh, bring this quadruple murderer um, to justice. Next on the docket, the Delphi case. That's right. Now, Richard Allen, he's currently housed in the Westville Correctional Facility under the control of the Indiana Department of Corrections and may, and probably should, attend the hearing in person now that he is represented by two court-appointed attorneys. Now, Mr. Allen is charged, obviously, with the two counts of felony murder for the killing of 14-year-old Libby German and 13-year-old Abby Williams, who are hiking along the bridge and its pass during a day off from school on February 13th of 2017. Now, the Carroll County officials are making plans this week to determine how to handle the anticipated rush of media and onlookers who will throng to the courthouse in uh, downtown Delphi next Tuesday for the first public hearing into the case of the man accused of killing the girls. Prosecutor Nicholas McClellan successfully convinced Carroll Circuit Judge Benjamin Diner to seal the probable cause affidavit investigators relied upon to arrest Mr. Allen a week after searching his Delphi home for evidence leaking him to the murders and the crime scene. That document was sealed during Allen's non-public initial hearing on October 28th, two days after his arrest at the Lafayette Post of the Indiana State Police it would have to be a substantial cause and it would have to be for a very limited duration. Mr. Allen obviously has a right to know the nature of the charges against him. Citing the overwhelming demand the case made upon uh, his court and fears of his own personal safety, Judge Diener recused himself from the case and was replaced by Allen County Superior Judge Fran Gull, who will arrive from Fort Wayne on November 22nd to preside over the hearing on whether to release the probable cause uh, affidavit or keep it sealed 
or direct the prosecutor to make certain redactions before it is in fact made public. Now, people familiar with Judge Gull indicate that she is inclined toward the release of the affidavit. Frankly, I don't think she has any way of not releasing it. Anyway, the Indiana State Police Superintendent, a guy by the name of Doug Carter, has said that he is not opposed to the release and that the probable cause stands on its own and that the investigative quality will not be affected by its release. Wow. But yet we've had it sealed until the 22nd. Now, the most significant detail that could be released in the affidavit would be what uh, confirms to the investigator process that led detectives back to Allen five and a half years after he first came forward. Now, the probable cause affidavit may reveal whether Allen bears a resemblance to any image or audio captured on the cell phone of Livy German on the day of the killing. Investigators have previously alleged in the case against a Peru man that Libby communicated with him through a social media app the night before her death. Now, Keegan Klein faces 25 counts of uh, child solicitation and obstruction in an unrelated uh, case to the Delphi case, maybe. Okay, the attorneys may seek or Judge Gull may actually issue a gag order um, on all uh, personnel related to the trial. We will have to wait and see. Hopefully, she goes for release to the public. Public has a right to know. Debbie Collier, remember that case? Yeah, the one, yeah, the missing mom who texts saying they're not gonna let me go. It's a suicide, apparently. That's right. The death of Georgia mom, Debbie Collier, who was found naked and burned in a ravine has been ruled a suicide. Now, Collier was last seen on September 10th when she left her Athens, Georgia home en route to Clarksville, which is about 60 miles away. The next day, the uh, real estate agent's body was found naked and partially burned in a wooden ravine near the Tallulah Falls uh, with her purse and cell phone nearby. Now, Collier's death was initially feared to have been the result of a homicide, but this week it was revealed that the Georgia Medical Examiner's Office has ruled Collier's death a suicide, having suffered inhalation and superheated gases, thermal injuries, and hydrocodone intoxication, according to the Hammersham County Deputy Coroner, Ken Franklin. Now, Coroner Franklin added, it's pretty evident that she started the fire. From what I saw and what I considered in the case, this was a self-inflicted death, but I was relying on the results of the autopsy and the doctor at the lab to make the final determination. Now, her body was found partially burned on September 11th. Last week, Collier's daughter, Amanda Bearden, stated that she believed her mother had in fact taken her own life. And um, she stated that her mother uh, began to share key intimate things with her in the weeks leading up to her death and said, looking back on it, it just almost seemed like she was giving all of her things away. Uh, Bearden added that the last time she saw her mother alive, her mother had tears in her eyes. And I stated that she had never seen her like that before. Weird case, weird case. We're all gonna, I guess, rely upon the medical professionals for this one. Interesting, interesting case. How suddenly it went from a homicide investigation to, ah, harmed herself. Huh, okay. Next, Alec Murdoch. That's right. He has filed his notice of alibi. This is the theory of the defense. Uh, this is his alibi. He is locked into this by uh, statute and rule. 
when you give a notice of alibi, usually it has to be done a certain time before trial. Usually 35 days prior to that, you must give notice of alibi or any witnesses that you intend to call to support that alibi. So he, in fact, did file a uh, notice of alibi. And this notice basically is locking in where Mr. Murdoch was at the time prosecutors allege that his wife and son were brutally slain on the night of June 7th of 2021. Now, according to the notice, Mr. Murdoch was not present at the time, place, and date of the murders of his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, because he was not present. Murdoch does not know the time that the murders were in fact committed. And Murdoch was on the Moselle property from sometime prior to 8.30 p.m. on June 7th, 2021, until a few minutes after 9 p.m. when he left to visit his mother at 115 Alameda Place, Varnville, South Carolina. Now, Maggie and Paul were alive at the last time he saw them before leaving for Almeda. During the drive to Almeda, Murdoch had his cell phone conversations with his son, Buster Murdoch, his brother, John Marvin Murdoch, his sister-in-law, Liz Murdoch, and Chris Wilson and C.B. Rowe. Murdoch arrived at Almeda at approximately 9.20 p.m. He visited with his mother, Elizabeth Murdoch, and a nurse aide, Michelle Shelley Smith. Murdoch uh, stayed with his mother until approximately 9.45 p.m. and then returned to Moselle, arriving at approximately 10 p.m. On the return trip, Moselle Murdoch spoke with Chris Wilson via his cell phone. Now, Murdoch discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies at approximately 10.05 p.m. So all of those people that Mr. Murdoch had a conversation with will more than likely be called to the witness stand to confirm his alibi. More than likely, the defense has information corroborating that movement that allegedly took place from Moselle to Almeida at the uh, nursing home there. And you would think that the nurse's aide would be a key witness to corroborate the time that Mr. Murdoch was there. This will be interesting to see because the times for the prosecution and their time of death have changed. But this information is going to be solid. So we'll see how the prosecution uh, gets around this notice of alibi. Remember, the prosecution has to prove that Mr. Alec Murdoch, not someone look like him, not someone using his identity, not somebody that has a beef against his family, is the one that committed these crimes. Not just we think he did. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Not a vague, imaginary, speculative doubt, but a doubt that would cause people to pause in matters of great importance. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Now, a man uh, settled into a rental home in Pensacola, Florida, and proceeded to have a normal day. The catch, that's right, he didn't pay for the rental property, he broke in. The Escambia County Sheriff's Office said that 28-year-old Zachary Seth Murdoch smashed a glass porch door and entered an unoccupied rental um, home. Murdoch used the bathtub, slept in the bedroom, uh, made himself a nice cup of coffee in, uh, in the kitchen. Uh, the police allege that Mr. Murdoch left the coffee on the back porch while he filled the kitchen trash can with trash, including his bus ticket stubs. Genius. Genius. At least he was trying to tidy up, right? Well, the dis <sighs> deputies responded to the home on a call of an attempted burglary, uh, the victim told the police the man was wearing a dark colored shirt, 
dark colored pants and a baseball cap uh, that he walked up to her sliding glass door and started pulling on the handle. When she asked the suspect what he was doing here, he said he was looking for Tony and left. Deputy said Mr. Murdoch was quickly found near the property. He was arrested for burglary as well as damage to the property. Ah, yes. That's, we have a thing in the United States called private property rights. I know it exists in other parts of the world. You don't go into another person's castle, their home, without permission. That's just the way it is. And in some states, if you go into the home, bad things could happen to you once you cross the threshold of that door. Just saying, all you would-be Mr. Murdochs out there. All right, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk. Crime Talk.